Hello, welcome back to another episode of Fantasize Me Halloween Edition. Ooh, we are almost done with October, which means almost done with the Halloween episodes. But here we go. This is Fantasize Me, the podcast where I take characters real or imagined and I fantasize them as D&D characters. I'm your host, Zach Katz, and today for this Halloween episode, we are going to be fantasizing Lizzie Borden. Now, if that name's not familiar to you, buckle up, all right? If that name is familiar to you, this'll be review. So, Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden was born July 19th, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts to Sarah Anthony Borden and Andrew Jackson Borden. Her father was wealthy, but known for his frugality, so the Borden home lacked indoor plumbing, even though that was a pretty common accommodation for wealthy people at the time, did not have indoor plumbing. His home was in an affluent area in Massachusetts, but all of the wealthy residents of Fall River lived in the more fashionable neighborhood called The Hill, which was further from the industrial areas of the city and much more homogenous racially, ethically, and socioeconomically. So essentially, it was just a bunch of rich white people living in The Hill. Now, Lizzie Borden, she had a pretty religious upbringing. She attended the church. She was very involved in church activities, including teaching Sunday school to children of recent immigrants to the United States. That's so cute. She was involved in Christian organizations. She was, you know, just a, a good little Christian girl. Now, three years after the death of Lizzie Borden's mother, Sarah, Andrew married Abby Gray. Lizzie stated that she would always call her stepmother Mrs. Borden. So they did not have a good relationship because Lizzie believed that Abby Gray had married her father for his wealth. Which, there's a lot of evidence from that. Bridget Sullivan, whom they called Maggie, was the Borden's 25-year-old live-in maid. She testified that Lizzie and her sister Emma rarely ate meals with their parents, so there may have been a lot of dislike there. Also, in May of 1892, Andrew killed multiple pigeons in his barn with a hatchet, believing they were attracting local children to hunt them. Now, Lizzie seemed to love animals. She had recently built a roost for the pigeons, but Andrew killed them all. So it's been commonly recounted that little Lizzie Borden was very upset over his killing them. There was a big family argument in July of 1892, prompting both sisters, Lizzie and Emma, to take extended vacations in New Bedford. And then even after returning to Fall River a week before the murders, Lizzie chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before returning to the family residence. So there was clearly a lot of familial friction. Uh, definitely dislike for Abby, her stepmother. And one of the reasons for this tension was Andrew would gift real estate to various branches of Abby's family, and even going so far as to giving their stepmother's sister a house. So a lot going on there. And the night before the murders, John Morse, the brother of Lizzie's and Emma's deceased mother, visited and was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew. There's speculation, because there's always speculation, that their conversations really exacerbated an already very intense situation. Now, we fast forward to August 4th, 1892, the day of the murders. This might be a little 
graphic? Just, I don't know, trigger warning, I guess. So John Morse arrived on the evening of August 3rd. He slept in the guest room that night. After breakfast, where pretty much everyone was present, the father, Andrew, the stepmother, Abby, Lizzie, John Morse, and the Borden's maid were present. Emma was the only one not present. Andrew and John Morse went to the sitting room. They chatted for a while, and then Morse left at around 8.48 a.m. to buy a pair of oxen and visit his niece in Fall River. And he planned to return to the Borden home for lunch at around noon. And then Andrew left for his morning walk sometime after nine. So it's said that the cleaning of the guest room was normally one of Lizzie's and Emma's regular chores. But for some reason, Abby went upstairs to the guest room sometime between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. to make the bed. According to the forensic investigation, Abby was facing her killer at the time of the attack. She was first struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, which cut her just above the ear, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor, creating contusions on her nose and forehead. Her killer then struck her multiple times, delivering 17 more direct hits to the back of her head, killing her. Andrew returned from his walk at around 10.30 a.m., and his key failed to open the door, so he knocked. The maid, Sullivan, went to unlock the door, and finding it jam, she swore. And she would later testify that she heard Lizzie laughing immediately after this. She said that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs, and this is considered significant as Abby was already dead by this time, and her body would have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. Of course, Lizzie later denied being upstairs and testified that her father had asked her where Abby was, and she had replied that a messenger had delivered Abby a summons to visit a sick friend. Now, in her testimony, Lizzie stated that she had then removed Andrew's boots and helped him into his slippers before he lay down on the sofa for a nap. Which was odd, because the crime scene photos all show Andrew still wearing his boots. Lizzie then informed their maid Sullivan of a department store sale and permitted her to go. But Sullivan was feeling unwell and went to take a nap in her bedroom instead. So Sullivan is in her third floor room. She's resting from cleaning of the windows. And she testified that just before 11.10 a.m., she heard Lizzie call from downstairs, Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Andrew was slumped on a couch in the downstairs sitting room, struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet-like weapon. One of his eyeballs had been split cleanly in two, suggesting that he had been asleep when attacked. His still-bleeding wound suggested a very recent attack. The family's physician, Dr. Bowen, arrived from his home across the street to determine that both Andrew and Abby had died. Detectives estimated Andrew's death at around 11 a.m. Now, it seems like all through the investigation and the trial, Lizzie Borden's answers to all the questions are usually strange and contradictory. Like I said, she said that she greeted her father at the door, removed his boots and put on his slippers, even though in the crime scene photos, he's still wearing his boots. She said she reported hearing a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call before she entered the house. But then a few hours later, she told police that she didn't hear anything and entered the house not realizing anything was wrong. When asked where her stepmother was, she recounted Abby received a note asking her to visit a sick friend, like I mentioned. But she also stated she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone could go upstairs to look for her. Their maid Sullivan and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, 
walked halfway up the stairs, their eyes level with the floor, when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby lying face down on the floor. Most of the officers who interviewed Lizzie said that they disliked her attitude. They said she was too calm. And despite her unnerving attitude, the alibis that kept changing, nobody actually bothered to check her for bloodstains. Police kind of searched her room. Uh, at the trial, they admitted to not doing a proper search because Lizzie was not feeling well. But in the basement, police found two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle as if someone had just used it too much or swung it too hard and it broke. This hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh and there was also ash and dust on the head, unlike the other bladed tools that appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as if it had been in the basement for some time. So as if like the other instruments, it still had dust on it. However, even though Abby and Andrew had been murdered, and this looked a lot like a murder weapon, none of these tools were removed from the house. They left them there. Two days later on August 6th, police conducted a more thorough search of the house where they finally inspected the sister's clothing. They finally confiscated the broken handled hatchet head. And that evening, a police officer and the mayor visited the Bordens, and Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the murders. The next morning of the 7th, Lizzie and Emma's friend Alice Russell said she entered the kitchen to find Borden tearing up a dress. Lizzie explained that she was planning to put it on the fire because it was covered in paint. So, you know, that's maybe a little suspect. Her inquest hearing was held on August 8th. Again, a lot of her answers and testimony was often contradictory, providing alternative accounts to the morning question where she said she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived at home, saying she was in the dining room doing some ironing, then saying she was just coming down the stairs when her father arrived. And again, she said she removed her father's boots and put slippers on him, but we know that that's not true. On August 11th, Lizzie Borden was served with a warrant of arrest and jailed. A grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th, and Lizzie was indicted on December 2nd. Her trial took place in New Bedford starting on June 5th, 1893, and it was very well documented. There were so many reports and testimonies, and this had so much press attention nationwide. Of course, the public was so enamored of this sweet girl Lizzie just suddenly committing two heinous murders the public was lapping it up. Now during the trial, again, Lizzie kept saying things that were contradictory or things that were just proven to be not true. Uh, she said she was not in the house at the time of the murders. She left to go into the barn at around 11 and was not in the house for 20 minutes or possibly half an hour. But neighbors said that they saw Lizzie leaving the barn just a few minutes after 11. And even before those 20 minutes or possibly half an hour could have passed, the maid Sullivan says that Lizzie called her downstairs to tell her of Andrew's murder at 11.10. On June 20th, 1893, the jury was sent to deliberate, and after an hour and a half, they acquitted Borden of the murders. It's often noted that this trial is a landmark in publicity and public interest in the history of American legal proceedings. Now, of course, even after being acquitted, there's so much speculation because just reading about it, I do, you know, all of my very in-depth research for this podcast on Wikipedia, sue me. No, don't. I don't have money. And just from the Wikipedia article I'm reading, 
like she she did it right like she did it 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 doesn't matter either way this was a, a long time ago but still she did it anyway not for me to judge not for me to say she might have done it she might not have done it she was acquitted so in this speculation a prominent suggestion of why she committed the murders was that she was physically and sexually abused by her father. There's little evidence to actually support this, but even so, this belief was echoed in local papers at the time of the murders. Which I think is just people looking for a reason. People always try to look for why bad things happen. So this is just kind of, what would make sense to have this nice Christian girl go postal and murder these two people, well, it could have been this abuse. But of course, that could also be true because how do you prove that, right? Even today, abusers still get away with it because it can be really hard to prove with modern forensics. Back in the 19th century, unless things were plainly visible to the naked eye, people could get away with it. And that sucked and continues to suck. But who knows, her father may have been an abuser and she was just seeking revenge. But another suspect is John Morse, Lizzie's maternal uncle. After his sister died, he rarely met with the family, but just coincidentally, he slept in the house the night before the murders. According to law enforcement, John Morse had provided an absurdly perfect and over-detailed alibi for the death of Abby Borden. So I can understand why he did not like Abby. It may have been for the same reason that Lizzie did, that he felt she was just taking advantage of Andrew, taking his money, using him for the real estate that he can give out to her family. So maybe he just had too much of this and Andrew would not listen to reason. So he killed them both. Or just Abby and Lizzie killed Andrew. Maybe they conspired together. Who knows? After the trial, the Borden sisters, Lizzie and Emma, moved to a house in The Hill, that nice affluent neighborhood. Around this time, Lizzie stopped going by Lizzie. Obviously, the trial of Lizzie Borden was famous, and she began to go by Lizbeth. So she was pretty much ostracized by the society of where she lived, but she stayed in the area. She stayed in Fall River. Eventually, Emma and Lisbeth now had an argument, and Emma moved out of the house and never saw her sister again. This was in 1905. And then in 1927, on June 1st, Lisbeth Borden died of pneumonia, just nine days before her sister, Emma, died at the age of 76 in New Hampshire. So that is a bit about Lizzie Borden and why she is a great Halloween character. Just like the other real-life character I did for the Halloween episodes, Elizabeth Bathory, she was a real-life murderer. I mean, she didn't kill as many people as Elizabeth Bathory, but few people have. So I just thought it would be fun to do another murderess, but have them be so different. So now that we know a bit about Lizzie Borden's background, let's go with background. Yeah, let's have fun. Sure, we're talking about actual murders, truly heinous murders, but we can have 
fun with it. For background, I'm thinking I mentioned how she was very religious. So I'm thinking we could just go acolyte, someone who has spent time in service of a higher power. As an acolyte, she'll get skill proficiencies in insight and religion, as well as two languages of her choice. So nice and easy. Now we are going to go for race. For race, I'm going to go with half orc. So half orcs get a plus two to strength and plus one to constitution. They have dark vision. She has the ability menacing, which automatically gives her proficiency in intimidation. She has relentless endurance. So when she's reduced to zero hit points but not killed outright, she can drop to one hit point instead. And she can't use this feature again until she finishes a long rest. She's also going to have Savage Attacks. So when she scores a critical hit with a melee weapon attack, she can roll one of the weapon's damage dice one additional time and add it to the extra damage of the critical hit. I think both Relentless Endurance and Savage Attacks are so good. Right now, say she's wielding a Great Axe, which is probably what I want her to wield, right? Pretty apropos. That's 1d12 damage normally. If she gets a crit, that would be 2d12, but because of savage attacks, a nat 20 on the die means that's 3d12 damage right off the bat. She can potentially be dealing 3d12 damage at first level. That's insane, and I love it. Languages, she can speak common and orc. So she is common and orc. Let's pick two other languages. I think we're going to go spooky. So I'm going to say infernal and demonic, because why the hell not, right? Beautiful. I love it. So now that we have background, acolyte, and we have race, half orc, we are going to roll for stats. So we're going to take a six-sided die, roll it four times, drop the lowest number, add up the remaining three, in order to get one of her six stats. So we're going to do that six times. All right, I rolled for stats. She did wonderfully, all right? She has 16, 13, 14, 11, 16, and 12. So pretty damn good, all right? I I usually don't go into this podcast knowing what I'm going to do. I just kind of suss it out and feel it, you know? I just really feel it. But for this, I kind of have an idea of what I want for her. So we're going to put that 16 into strength. As a half-orc, that gets a plus two, so that's going to be an 18 into strength, which is a plus four. Her next highest is 16, which I'm going to put into constitution, which gets a plus one. So that's 17 to constitution, which is a plus three. Next, we have 14. I'm going to put that into dexterity, which is a plus two. Then we have 13. Let's do intelligence. Mm, no. Yeah. No. 13 for charisma. So that's a plus one for charisma. 12 we're going to put in intelligence. Mm, yes, 12 we're going to put in intelligence, which is a plus one as well, which means the 11 goes into wisdom, which is a plus zero modifier. So her beginning stats are 18 strength, 14 dexterity, 17 constitution, 12 intelligence, 11 wisdom, and 13 charisma. So excellent. Now that we have our stats, we are going to pick class. So for first level, we are going into Barbarian. So I think you can see where my idea of Lizzie is taking us. She's just going to be this savage, brutal force that no one can take down. 
it's speculated that the murders were done in a sort of fugue state. So I'm going to say that that's what happens when she goes into a rage. She just enters this fugue state and just starts murdering. Perfect. Barbarians have the most hit points of any class. So she is going to start with a d12 for her hit dice, which means she's starting with 15 hit points. At first level, it's just the max number it could be on the die, plus constitution, which is 12 plus 3. That is beautiful. 15 hit points at first level. Some classes or characters won't get to 15 hit points until third level. She has proficiency with light armor, medium armor, and shields, though I doubt she's going to use any of the above. Proficiency in simple weapons and martial weapons. Proficiencies in strength and constitution saving throws. So that means she has plus six to her strength saving throws and plus five to her constitution saving throws. She can also choose two skills to be proficient in from animal handling, athletics, intimidation, nature, perception, and survival. She already has intimidation. I think I'm going to go athletics just because her strength is so good and that's the only skill that uses strength. That athletics is going to be a plus six. And then I am going to say, let's see, she doesn't have any wisdom, but I'm going to give her proficiency in perception just because it's usually the most useful skill, which gives her a plus two for perception because proficiency bonus at first level is plus two. As a first level barbarian, she gets rage. So on her turn, she can enter a rage as a bonus action. While raging, you gain the following benefits if you aren't wearing heavy armor. She's going to have advantage on strength checks and strength saving throws. When she makes a melee weapon attack using strength, she gains a plus two bonus to the damage roll and she'll have resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. So I really love the idea of this fugue state, just something coming over her, possessing her, where she's just numb to pain, and her only focus is murder. Barbarians have the ability Unarmored Defense, so while she's not wearing any armor, her armor class is 10, plus her dexterity modifier, plus her constitution modifier. And you can use a shield and still gain this benefit. So right now, her armor class is going to be 15 without wearing any armor. And she can be using a shield to further bump that up to a 17 armor class. That is very good for barbarians. Usually their armor class is a bit lower because they tend not to wear much armor. At second level, we're going to multi-class. We are already going to multi-class and we are going to go into fighter. I'm sure some of you listening to this know exactly what's going on. That's fine. I'm not trying to reinvent anything. I just think this is a very fun build and I love that for her. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, then you will soon enough. So as a first level fighter, she is going to get a fighting style where she adopts a particular style of fighting as her specialty. Obviously, we're going to go with great weapon fighting, because I imagine her just wielding this massive axe. So when she rolls a 1 or 2 on a damage die for an attack she makes with a melee weapon that she's wielding with two hands, like a great axe, she can re-roll the die and must use the new roll, even if the new roll is 1 or 2. So I love this fighting style, because she can just use it every time she attacks if she rolls a 1 or 2 for her great axe. Great axes use 12-sided die or d12s, and getting a 1 or 2 when you could be dealing 12 damage really sucks. But now, look at that, she can just re-roll those. 
she also gets the ability Second Wind. So on her turn, she can use a bonus action to regain hit points equal to 1d10 plus her fighter level. And that can be used once per short or long rest. That's pretty good. It becomes less useful the higher leveled you are. Because even as a 20th level fighter, the most you can heal with Second Wind is 30 hit points. And at 20th level, 30 hit points isn't even that great. But hey, you know, that's free healing. Third level, we are going to go into Fighter, where she gains Action Surge. On her turn, she can take one additional action. So once she uses this feature, she has to finish a short or long rest before she can use it again. So that means she can attack with her axe, and then Action Surge, and just attack a second time. I love that, that ferocity. Fourth level, we are going third in Fighter, where she's going to get her Martial Archetype. This one, I am going to choose Champion. So the champion martial archetype is a really simple and straightforward one. She just gets one thing from it at third level called improved critical. So now her weapon attacks score a critical hit on a roll of 19 or 20. So normally if you get a crit, that means you rolled a nat 20 and you double the die that you roll for the attack. So with her great axe, that is 1d12 doubled to 2d12. Because she's a half-orc, that is 3d12. And now she'll be able to roll that 3d12 on a 19 or 20, essentially doubling the chance that she can dish out that crazy amount of damage. At fifth level, we are going to jump back and become second in Barbarian. And we are just going to keep going in Barbarian. I don't think we are going to go back to fighter. Maybe we will for that ability score improvement. No, we are not. Okay. As a second level barbarian, she gains danger sense, which gives her advantage on dexterity saving throws against effects that she can see, such as traps and spells. And in order to gain this benefit, she can't be blinded, deafened, or incapacitated. So that's awesome because while raging, she has advantage on strength checks and strength saving throws. And now she can have advantage on dexterity saving throws as well. So you're going to be really good at avoiding danger. Also at second level, she gains reckless attack. So when she makes her first attack on her turn, she can decide to attack recklessly, which will give her advantage on melee weapon attack rolls using strength during this turn. The downside is attack rolls against her are going to also have advantage until her next turn. But I love this because right now she can only make one attack, but she can do so with advantage, doubling her chances of getting that critical, which has already been doubled. So essentially, she now, whenever she attacks recklessly, can have quadruple that chance of getting a critical hit, which deals so much damage for her. Sixth level, we are going third in Barbarian, where she is going to pick her primal path. So that is the name of the barbarian subclasses. They're called primal paths. We are going with path of the berserker. So rage is just a way of life for these barbarians. She's going to gain the ability frenzy. She can now go into a frenzy when she rages. And if she does so for the entire duration of her rage, she can make a single weapon attack as a bonus action on each of her turns after this one. When the rage ends, she's going to suffer one level of exhaustion. But she can essentially now have two attacks every turn. If she attacks recklessly, they can both be made with advantage. And on a 19 or 20, she's going to be dealing 3d12 plus 4 damage. Uh, the plus 4 is from her strength modifier. So that's insane. 
Of course we're going to go with that. We, what else am I going to do? You know, we're going to go fourth level in Barbarian where she's going to get an ability score improvement where she can increase one ability score of her choice by two or two ability scores of her choice by one or she can pick a feat. I think for now, I'm just going to max out strength. So strength is now a 20, which is a plus five modifier that is as high as it gets without, you know, a special ability or magical item. Eighth level, we are going fifth in Barbarian, where she is going to get extra attack. So now whenever she takes the attack action on her turn, she can just attack twice. So this means she can attack twice, she can use Frenzy to bonus action attack, and then she can action surge to just attack two more times. So with action surge, she can get five attacks off. Attacking recklessly will give her advantage on all five attacks, and she crits on a 19 or 20. I love that for her. She's so good at murder. Fifth level is also going to give her fast movement. So while she isn't wearing heavy armor, which she's not, her speed increases by 10. So half-orcs have a regular speed of 30 feet. She now has a speed of 40 feet. So she is very fast, very good at running towards people and bludgeoning them to death. Ooh, so macabre. Ninth level, she is going to get another path feature. So as a Path of the Berserker Barbarian, she gets Mindless Rage. So while she's raging, she cannot be charmed or frightened. And if she is charmed or frightened while she enters the rage, the effect of those are suspended for the duration of the rage. So if someone tries to spook her, to, to scare her off, to charm her, get her to leave them alone, she can just go into this mindless rage and ignore those effects and just keep killing. 10th level, that is going to be 7th level Barbarian. She is going to get Feral Instinct. So she now has advantage on initiative rolls. Additionally, if she's surprised at the beginning of combat and she's not incapacitated, she can act normally on her first turn, but only if she enters her rage before doing anything else on that turn. So some idiot thinks that they can sneak up on Lizzie Borden, take her by surprise, and maybe like assassinate her or something. Because of her feral instincts, she just cannot be surprised by these people. They think they get a surprise round on her, and instead she just attacks them three times with a great axe. I love that. You think you're going to have easy prey, and instead you get a face full of axe. <sighs> Dreams. 11th level, that is 8th in Barbarian. That's another ability score improvement. For this one, we are definitely going to take a feat. There is one that works perfectly with this build. It is called Great Weapon Master. So the first ability it gives is on her turn, when Lizzie scores a critical hit with a melee weapon or reduces a creature to zero hit points with one, she can make one melee weapon attack as a bonus action. Now that is not really useful because she can make a melee weapon attack as a bonus action every turn because of Frenzy. So that's not gonna really do much. But the second ability of Great Weapon Master before Lizzie makes a melee attack with a heavy weapon that she's proficient in, she can choose to take a minus five penalty to the attack roll. And if the attack hits, she adds plus 10 to the attack's damage. Okay, she's an 11th level character, which means she has a plus four proficiency bonus. She has a plus five to strength, which means she has a plus nine to her attack rolls. If she chooses to take a minus five penalty to the attack roll, she'll have a plus four to the attack roll, which is not very good. But if she does hit, she's going to add plus 10 to the attack's damage. 
And remember, she can attack three times per turn. So she can potentially deal an additional 30 damage on each of her turns. Broken powerful. I love that. And this is assuming, like, she doesn't get a magical weapon that increases her attack modifier. 12th level, 9th and Barbarian, she's going to get Brutal Critical. So now when she gets a critical hit with a melee attack, she rolls one additional weapon damage die. She already rolled an additional one. Now she's going to roll two more. So that means if she rolls a 19 or 20 for any of her melee weapon attacks with her great axe, that is going to be 4d12 damage. And if she uses the great weapon master, that is going to be 4d12 plus 15 damage. So insane. Oh, I love how much damage she can deal. And remember, while she's raging, she has resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. So she's dealing so much damage out. And a lot of the damage she might be taking is halved. 13th level, that is 10th in Barbarian, she's going to get another path feature called Intimidating Presence. So now she can use her action to frighten someone with her menacing presence. So she can choose one creature that she can see within 30 feet of her. If the creature can see or hear her, it has to succeed on a wisdom saving throw. And the DC for that, or the difficulty that they have to beat, is 8 plus her proficiency bonus plus her charisma modifier. At 13th level, her proficiency went up to plus 5. Her charisma is plus 1. So 8 plus 1 plus 5 is 14. So they have to get a 14 or higher on a wisdom saving throw. Or else they are frightened until the end of Lizzie's next turn. On subsequent turns, she can use her action to extend the duration of this effect on the frightened creature until the end of her next turn. So... This honestly is not that good of an ability. At 13th level, having a DC of 14 is not good. So there are probably going to be a lot of creatures that can withstand this intimidating presence. And this uses her full action, which means she won't be able to make two of her attacks. She can still use that frenzy bonus action attack, but she would have to give up two of her attacks in order to try to intimidate someone. Uh, why? Just murder them. You know what I mean? 14th level, she gets Relentless Rage. So now, if she drops to zero hit points while she's raging and she doesn't die outright, she can make a DC 10 constitution saving throw, and if she succeeds, she drops to one hit point instead. So right now she has plus eight to her constitution saving throws, so if she gets a two or higher, she can use this ability. So because she's a half-orc and gains Relentless Endurance, when she's reduced to zero hit points but not killed outright, she can drop to one hit point instead. And then after she uses Relentless Endurance, if she's dropped to zero again, she can use Relentless Rage and make a constitution saving throw to try to stay up again. Each time she uses this feature after the first, the DC increases by five. So the second time she tries to use Relentless Rage, she'll have to make a 15 constitution saving throw. The third time, it'll have to be a DC 20 constitution saving throw. When she finishes a short or long rest, the DC is going to reset to that base 10. So that's such a good ability. I love that. She is just so full of rage and murderous lust that she just refuses to go down. There's still more blood to be spilled. 
15th level in Barbarian, another ability score improvement. I think let's give her the feat called Tough. I love Barbarians with a Tough ability because Barbarians typically have so many hit points. And what Tough does is that gives her an additional two hit points per level. So right now she's a 15th level character, which means she automatically gets 30 hit points. And now every time she levels up, she gains an additional two. So she is swimming in hit points. And it's so hard to get her down because even if you manage to get through all of those immense hit points, there's still relentless endurance to get through and relentless rage to get through before she'll actually go down. 16th level Barbarian, hey look at that, another Brutal Critical. So now she can add an additional weapon damage dice, that means on a 19 or 20, she's going to be dealing 5d12 plus 5 damage, and if she uses Great Weapon Master, that is 5d12 plus 15 damage, oh so much damage, oh! And remember she attacks 3 times, so there's a chance that she'll crit more than once per turn, especially if she's using Reckless Attack and making three attacks with advantage every turn, she's going to be getting crits all the time. 17th level Barbarian, that is the final path feature. The final feature for Berserker is going to be called Retaliation. So now when she takes damage from a creature within five feet of her, she can immediately use her reaction to make a melee weapon attack against that creature. Now she can't use Reckless Attack to gain advantage on this one, but this still potentially gives her one more attack per round to crit on. So she doesn't have advantage, but even if she rolls a 19 or 20 on this reaction, hey, that's still 5d12 plus 5 damage for a freaking reaction. So good. 18th level she gets Persistent Rage as a 15th level Barbarian, which means her rage is so fierce that it ends early only if she falls unconscious or if she chooses to end it. I didn't mention them, but there are a few caveats in which rage can just end. So if she's knocked unconscious, or if her turn ends and she hasn't attacked a hostile creature since her last turn, or taken damage since then. But now, she doesn't have to worry about that. She can keep on raging until she gets knocked out. That means she can just be in a rage the whole freaking day. You know what I mean? She can be in a rage like, oh, I'm going to go kill those people. I don't have to use my bonus action to fly into a rage. I'm already in one. I woke up angry. You know, 19th level Barbarian, another ability score improvement. I think we are going to just give her a third feat because I love feats. And she doesn't really need much in the way of ability score improvements. I am going to give her mobile because I I just really like this one for barbarians. It uh it feels good. So because she's mobile, her speed increases by 10 feet. So now that base speed of 30 that half orcs have is bumped up to a total of 50 feet, an additional 10 feet from fast movement, and now an additional 10 feet from mobile. Also, when she uses the dash action, difficult terrain does not cost her any extra movement. So say people, uh, you know, destroy the ground in front of her, try to make it easier for them to run away. She can just dash 
and ignore all that noise. And now when she dashes, that means her speed is going to be 100 feet. And then she can use her frenzy bonus action to make an attack against them. So she can move 100 feet, bonus action, attack. I love it. Or she can use her action to dash, move 100 feet, bonus action, frenzy, and then action surge to move another 50 feet and attack another two times. Insane, and I love it. Also, when she makes melee weapon attacks against a creature, she doesn't provoke opportunity attacks from that creature for the rest of the turn, whether she hits or not. So if she's fighting multiple enemies and she wants to deal a bit of damage to all of them, she can run up to one of them, slash at them, and then run up to a second one, slash at them, and then run up to a third one, bonus action frenzy, to slash at them. So she can attack three different targets and not take any opportunity attacks from moving away from any of them. That is fun. That's fun, and I like that. 20th level, 17th in Barbarian. Hey, guess what? It's another brutal critical. So this is a third brutal critical, which means she rolls three additional weapon damage dice when determining the extra damage for a critical hit with a melee attack. So now on a 19 or 20, if she takes a minus five to her attack modifier, that is going to be 6d12 damage plus 15. 60, 12, plus 15. It's not like she's casting a high-level spell. You might think she is based on the damage rolls, but that's just truly an insane amount. And remember, if she rolls a 1 or a 2 on her damage die, because of great weapon fighting, she can re-roll those. So her average damage is going to be so high. Oh, and I almost forgot, she deals extra damage when she's raging, which she's doing all the time. So all of her attacks do an additional four damage. So it's gonna be 6d12 plus 19. Insane. And that is Lizzie Borden. Wow, okay. So my image for Lizzie Borden is she's just a, you know, a relatively sweet looking young woman. Uh, it was the 1800s, so probably wearing a dress of some sort. And someone makes the mistake of crossing her. She doesn't have to fly into a rage because she's already raging. And she just runs at them. And before they even know what's happening, she's made three attacks against them, getting crits, dealing that brutal critical, and just murdering them. You know? An angry mob comes to attack her, and she just mows them down, moving from one to the next without taking any opportunity attacks. And they're fighting back, and they can swear that they are getting hits on her. She is bleeding profusely from several wounds, but she will not go down. Resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing tough for extra hit points, relentless endurance, relentless rage. She is so hard to take down just from those abilities. But while you're trying to take her down, she is doing so much damage. I love that for her. She's so good. Oh, 
Imagine encountering her. The sun has set, the moon is high overhead. The cold air blows around you as the autumnal leaves shift on the breeze. And then you hear a voice. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. And then she murders you. So that's Lizzie Borden, the suspected axe murderess, background acolyte, race half-orc. She is a level 17 Path of the Berserker Barbarian and a level 3 Champion Fighter. Her ending stats were 20 Strength, 14 Dexterity, 17 Constitution, 12 Intelligence, 11 Wisdom, and 13 Charisma. She has plus 11 to Athletics, plus 6 to Insight, plus 7 to Intimidation, plus 6 to Perception, and plus 7 to Religion. For saving throws, she has plus 11 to Strength saving throws and plus 9 to Constitution saving throws. Her languages are Common, Orc, Infernal, and Demonic. And for feats, she has Great Weapon Master, Tough, and Mobile. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of Fantasize Me. Be sure to check out my other Halloween episodes and other episodes in general. I have, I think this is the, the 21st one. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at FantasizeMePod and email in character suggestions at FantasizeMePod at gmail.com. And I will see you on Thursday for the Thursday bonus Halloween episode. All right, I'll see you then. Bye.